Welcome back to Latin II class from the Church of St. Agnes. Today we are going to explore the grammatical concepts contained in Unit 21 of the Collins book. This begins on page 172. Now, just to review, remember in our last lesson, we talked about the formation of the present subjunctive. And even though Collins in that chapter only presented the first conjugation, I gave you a mnemonic device which enabled us to form the present subjunctives of all conjugations. You might recall the little rhyme, we hear a liar friar. And I told you to circle those vowels, uh, the E, the E-A, the A, and the I-A, and the I-A, and those um, show you the vowels that connect the base and the endings of each conjugation in the present subjunctive. So in the beginning part of Unit 21, Collins presents the second, third, and fourth conjugations present subjunctive. But you already know those. So we'll just review quickly. We hear a liar friar. In the first conjugation, the sign of the subjunctive is E for the present. In the second, it's E-A. So as you can see on page 173, we have moneam, moneas, moneat, and so on. The sign for the third conjugation is an A. We hear a liar friar, a a, so we have ducam, ducas, ducat, and so on. And then in the um, third I-O conjugation, uh, for instance, a verb like copio, we have liar. Uh, we hear a liar, and the uh, vowels used there are I-A, and we have copiam, copias, copiat, and so on. And then the fourth conjugation, Friar, I-A again, audiam, audias, audiat, as you see on page 173. The passives are formed by using the same vowels, but putting on passive endings, ar, ris, tour, mor, mini, and entur, and so on. So, this is a review for you because you've already learned the little mnemonic device, we hear a liar, friar. I instructed you on how to use that in forming the present subjunctives of each conjugation. And here we have it in Collins Unit 21. Now the more important part, or the new part for you in this unit, are a couple new uh, usages of the subjunctive. Um, last time we talked about the hortatory subjunctive and uh, the optative subjunctive, the optative subjunctive, the subjunctive of wish, the hortatory subjunctive, the let us subjunctive, or also called a, a subjunctive of uh, command or exhortation. Well, we have a little bit of an expansion of that uh, on section 113 here on page 174, uh, where Collins talks about direct commands or requests, the justice subjunctive. Now, I used that term jussive in our last unit because 
Um, sometimes the hortatory subjunctive is classified under uh, the heading of Jussiv. Jussiv comes from the Latin word ubeo, ubere, usi, usus. Ubeo, ubere, usi, usus, which means to order or command. So a Jussiv, we, we, we use the, the word, uh, the I comes into English as a J. The Jussiv subjunctive uh, is one that gives commands. So the, the present subjunctive can be used independently, as we noted last time, to give a command. Now we said the hortatory was primarily uh, when we said, let us, let us march forth, forth, let us do this, let us do that. Um, but it can also be used in the justive subjunctive or the subjunctive of command, uh, can also be used in the third person. We saw a couple examples of that. Here we see it more uh, pointedly. Uh, in the third person singular or sometimes the third person plural. Take a look at your examples given under section 113. Um, populus gaudeat. Now you see there, populus is the subject. Gaudiat is the verb. Gaudio gaudere comes from the uh, verb gaudio gaudere, second conjugation. We see the ea, that's the sign of the present subjunctive, for the second conjugation, we hear, right, the E-A in here, there's your, there are your two vowels. So we have this little sentence, populus gaudiat, let the people rejoice. This is a just of subjunctive, a command given in the third person, let the people rejoice. Notice that people in Latin uh, is a singular noun, and even though in English it's a collective noun, in Latin, we need a singular verb for a singular subject. So we have populus gaudiat. And then the next example, crucifigatur, I'm sorry, crucifigatur, crucifigatur, from crucifigo, um, to fasten to a cross, to crucify, obviously. And notice here, we have the third person, and it's a, uh, it's a passive verb. The tour ending, aris tour, is your passive ending. We have a third conjugation verb, uh, and we see that the sign of the subjunctive in the third conjugation is the A. Crucifigator, let him be crucified. This is what the crowd chanted when uh, Pilate asked, what should we do with uh, the man named Jesus? And the crowd yelled out, Crucifigatur, crucifigatur. Okay, so uh, summarizing again, this is the Joseph subjunctive. It's, uh, we see it now as a form of command. We can see it in uh, uh, primarily the first and third persons. Even on occasion, however, you will see a subjunctive making a request in the second person. But most commonly, we see it either in the hortatory form of the first person plural, let us do such and such, or in this third person form, uh, let the people rejoice, let something happen, so on and so forth. So uh, that's an independent use of the subjunctive, building on the one uh, that we learned first in our last unit. Um, our next usage which is again another independent use of the subjunctive, is the so-called deliberative subjunctive. And you see examples of this uh, in the middle of the page in section 114 on page 1, 
0.74. Now, the deliberative subjunctive is a subjunctive used in an independent way in a sentence in which we are deliberating. Okay? We are, we are asking what course of action to take or to adopt. We are deliberating. That's why it's called a deliberative subjunctive. And uh, you normally translate it as something like, uh, should I or am I to do this or what might I do or so on and so forth. Take a look at the examples. I think you'll see uh, them clearly here. Quod donum ad dominum demus. Notice demus is our verb coming from do dare, first conjugation verb. The E is the sign of the present subjunctive of the first conjugation. So uh, we have the subjunctive, and we have a question here, quod donum, what gift are we to give ad dominum to the Lord? Now, we could have had domino there without a preposition in the dative with the verb of giving, which is very common in Latin, more common than the ad dominum, as a matter of fact. But here we have ad dominum. That's very acceptable, particularly in, in uh, ecclesiastical Latin. So we have a question, and it's a deliberative subjunctive. What gift are we to give, or what gift should we give to the Lord? We're deliberating. What gift should we give? Uh, and so we put that demos, which is the main verb in the sentence, or in the question, in the subjunctive. And that's called the deliberative subjunctive. Take a look at the second example. Non mitam diaconos romam? Am I not to send the deacons to Rome? Should I not send the deacons to Rome? Okay, now we see that mitam is in the subjunctive. Mito is a third conjugation verb. A is the sign of the subjunctive present tense of the third conjugation. So that's why we have mitam. And uh, we notice the other thing to note in this sentence is romam without a preposition. Remember our rule about the names of cities, towns, small islands, domus and rus, the names of cities like Rome, we often, and as a matter of fact, always in classical Latin, very often in ecclesiastical Latin, ecclesiastical Latin, we, we do that motion toward without a preposition. So we don't say ad romam normally. We say just romam. So shall I send or should I send? Am I not to send the deacons to Rome? A deliberative question in the subjunctive. So there you have it. Another independent use of the subjunctive. And we've now covered the most important independent uses of the subjunctive. As we told you when we first introduced the subjunctive mood in uh, our last unit, the subjunctive mood is a mood of doubt and uncertainty. And uh, normally, most of the uses of the subjunctive occur, as I mentioned, in subordinate clauses because they tend to be at least one or two steps removed from the vividness uh, of the indicative statement in the main clause. Now, in this next particular usage, we are going to see a usage of the subjunctive in um, subordinate clause. So Collins is now going to introduce for you here on uh, page 174 and following uh, the notion of conditional clauses. Now, in a sense, conditions are not anything new to you because you actually have been translating uh, simple conditions 
for some time now in your practice sentences. Remember, in any language, a condition uh, uh, contains basically two clauses. You have an if clause and a then or conclusion clause. The if clause sets up the condition, the then is its conclusion. In Greek and in Latin uh, and in some other languages, we call those clauses the protesis and the apodesis. The protesis is the if clause, the apodesis is the then or conclusion clause. Okay, so you may hear me and other uh, people and, and read in books of grammar uh, something talking about the protesis or the apodesis uh, in a condition. Know that that means the if and the then clause. Now, you know that in a condition, the main clause of a condition or the main sentence is its conclusion. The subordinate clause is the clause introduced by if. In Latin, we use the word si, which means if, or nisi, which means if not or uh, unless. Very occasionally, si non can occur, but nisi is uh, the preferred uh, negative uh, particle introducing a condition. Now, we've, as I said, for some time now in your practice sentences, we have encountered simple conditions. There are several kinds of conditions in, in Latin, and Collins is going to introduce you today to two of those types. The first is the simple condition. And as I said, we've been doing these. The simple condition is, is just uh, uh, that, uh, a statement, without implying anything about its fulfillment. It's a conditional clause that doesn't really imply anything about its fulfillment. It's, it's a straight kind of statement. Therefore, we use the indicative. And there's a simple present and a simple past condition. So we see in our examples in the middle of page 175, let's take a look there. And I think you, that without even introducing this to you, if I presented you with these sentences, you would be able to translate them. They're very straightforward. They use present or past indicatives in both clauses. Si dominum invocamus nos audit. If we call upon or invoke the Lord, he hears us. Nos audit is the main verb and the main sentence. He hears us. If we call upon the Lord, he hears us. So that's a present, kind of a present general condition. There it is. It's a statement of fact. We use the present indicative in both clauses. Invocamus and audit, both present indicatives. Now the next sentence is a simple condition in the past. Notice we're using past tenses there. Nisi legem faciebant non justi erat. If they were not doing the law or keeping the law, legem faciebant, they were not righteous or just. Now the main sentence is non justi erat. They were not righteous. They were not just. We have a negative condition in the, in the protesis. If they were not keeping or doing the law, okay? So we have, notice, faci ebant in the imperfect, erant in the imperfect, and both in the indicative mood. So again, a simple past condition. If I hadn't told you anything about conditions, 
you had this in your practice sentence, I know you would have translated it correctly. The third example, same goes for this one. Si beatus es, deo gracias age. So we have a condition, si beatus es, if you are happy or if you are fortunate, deo gracias age. Give thanks to God. Thank God. Notice the idiom age gracias. Ago gratias means I give thanks. Age gratias is a command, isn't it? A singular command. Give thanks. That's an idiom. Age gratias. And the person to whom we give thanks goes in the dative. Deo. In English, we can just say thank God. But notice in Latin, you have to have the accusative gratias and the dative deo. Here we have a present imperative as the main uh, verb. Deo gracias agi. Give thanks to God if you are happy. So those are simple sentences. Those are simple conditions, pre present and past. They use indicatives in both clauses, either present or past indicatives. Now, we move on to the, and I think those are pretty straightforward. I think you know them in advance. You, you knew them. You've been translating sentences like this already, so that shouldn't be a problem. Now, let's move on to the classification of Latin conditions that are called future conditions. And there are two kinds of future conditions. We call them uh, future more vivid and future less vivid. These are obviously are conditions that are looking toward the future, action in the future. And I think from their very names, more vivid and less vivid, you can, you can sort of tell or um, deduce what might be coming. Uh, something that's more vivid is going to use a verbal mood that is factual, that is concrete. It's more vivid. Therefore, the future more vivid condition will take on the, the future indicative in both clauses. It will be the indicative mood. Whereas the future less vivid going to move our future action a little bit into the realm of doubt or uncertainty and therefore you can guess what mood is going to be used. Yes, the subjunctive. So again, the future more vivid conditions are conditions that you are pretty much familiar with um, and again, we have had those conditions in our practice sentences. They, they will require in the protasis a future or a future perfect indicative, and in the uh, apotesis or the conclusion, a future indicative. So two future indicatives in the clauses. Let's take a look and we'll, we'll explain and talk about these a little bit more. Let's take a look at our examples on page 176. Si voluntatem dei faciet Salvus efici etur. Okay, so we see that we have a condition introduced by C. We look and we see the verb faciet, and we see the verb in the uh, conclusion or the uh, apotesis, efici etur. And we see that we have two future tenses, one in the protesis, one in the apotesis. So how will we translate this? Well, technically it should say, if he will do the will of God, salvation, he will be saved. Um, what it means is uh, 
sal, sal, salvus, he will be made salvus. He will be, uh, idiomatically we say he will be saved, but literally it means he will be made a ficiator salvus. And salvus is uh, an adjective modifying the subject. He will be made safe. He will be made safe, therefore he will be saved. Now, the important point is we have two futures, in one in each clause. And notice, I said, translating literally, if he will do the will of God, he will be saved, or he will be made safe. Notice, in English, we don't normally use, when we do a future condition, we don't normally use the future tense in English. We normally say, as your book does, if he does the will of God, he will be saved. The idea, of course, is in the future. But in English, we don't tend to express that future tense in the protasis of the condition. Latin will. Latin will almost always use the future tense or the future perfect tense in the protasis, followed by a future tense in the apotasis. So here, faciet, future, efficiator, future. We have an active verb in the first uh, clause, a passive verb in the second. If he will do the will of God, or if he does the will of God, he will be made safe. That's what it literally means. Okay? So, we see that a, a, a simple, that's a future, more vivid condition. Now, let's take a look at the second one, because this will show us something a little different. Again, we have seen this in our practice sentences, but perhaps you didn't take note of it. Nisi voluntatem dei fecerimus in regnum celorum non introibimus. Now, when we look at our clauses, we see we have a condition introduced by the negative C, nisi, and we look at the verb, fecerimus. That is future, but it's not just the plain old future, it's the future perfect. And in the apotesis, introibimus, we have the future. Our main sentence is the apotesis, in reinum celorum non introibimus. We will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's our main sentence. We will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Under what circumstances? Unless we shall have done the will of God. That's literally what it says. Unless we will have done the will of God, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now again, in English, we tend not to use the future or the future perfect in the protasis in our, in our English sentences. We say, unless we do the will of God, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, Collins writes first with a parenthesis there. And he's right in doing that because I want you to think about what the use of the future perfect does in a conditional sentence, in a future more vivid condition. Think about it. Technically, the translation is, unless we will have done the will of God, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What we have in a future condition, always, is 
um, a future action. But notice that the if clause upon which the conclusion is contingent, right, has to occur logically before the future action in the conclusion. So if you think about it, it says here, unless we first will have done the will of God. That's why it's future perfect. We will have done the will of God, and then we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Both actions are in the future, but there are two actions in the future, and one of them comes before the other in the future. That's why the use of the future perfect is often used in Latin. Latin loves in future, more vivid conditions, to use the future perfect in the protasis. It doesn't have to. It can use a straight future like your previous sentence, but it will often, more often than not, use the future perfect tense in the protasis and then the future in the apotasis because logically the if clause comes first in the future before the conclusion future clause. I hope that makes sense to you. It makes perfect logical sense if you think about it because we first have to do the will of God. Unless we shall have done the will of God, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There you have it. Now let's take a look at your third example there. See, Petrus venerit cum palo chenet. Now we have the same idea here. Look, venerit is your future perfect tense from venio, right? The third principal part, veni, and then you add your erit. There you have it. So see, Petrus venerit. If Peter will have come, let him dine with Paul. Interesting. Instead of a pure uh, future condition, we have the protasis in the future perfect. If Peter will have come, you can just say in English, if Peter comes, then let him dine with Paul. And what we have is a uh, just a subjunctive from ceno cenare, let him dine, it's the subjunctive, cum Paul, with Paul. And notice, the, the, uh, the hortatory or the just of subjunctive does carry with it a kind of futurity. That's why we have uh, a future condition here, uh, which is really a mixed condition in the sense that we have the protasis of a future more vivid condition, and then it's followed up by a just of subjunctive. Let him dine with Paul if Peter comes, okay, or Peter will have come. So, your future more vivid condition, two futures, one in each clause, or a future perfect in the protasis and a future in the apotasis in the indicative mood. Now, move into the second category, and now we are moving into the realm of less certainty. And we call this the future less vivid condition. The future less vivid condition, as a result, has subjunctives in both clauses. And we will call the, the future less vivid condition by a second name. It's often called the should-would condition. And that's because that's how we will 
uh, translate the protesis and the apotesis with the verb should, would. Keep that in mind, the should, would condition. So it's a conditional clause. It's going to take place in the future, but it doesn't have the vividness or the indicativeness or the factuality that a future more vivid condition has. Take a look at your example. Si anus unus amitatur, pastor bonus est maestus. Now, that's a mixed condition. Before we do that one, let's go down to the second one. I don't know why um, he decides to put that one in there at this point. Let's look at a more typical future, more vivid condition with subjunctives in both clauses, okay? Look at the second sentence. Si Petrus domum intret, fratres orantes videat. If Peter should enter the house, he would see his brothers praying. Notice, si intret videat. This is a should-would condition, a future, less vivid condition. The formula is subjunctive in the protesis, subjunctive in the apotesis. Okay? So, what we have here is if Peter should enter. Now, notice, he hasn't done it yet. That's why it's a future condition. But it's setting up a kind of modality uh, or conditional uh, less vivid feeling, we're setting up a possibility. If Peter should enter the house, notice, again, we have domum without a preposition, the names of cities, towns, small islands, domus and rus, often place to which without a preposition, even in ecclesiastical Latin. So if Peter should enter the house, videat, he would see his brother's praying. He would see videat. So we have subjunctive in the protesis, subjunctive in the apotesis, a should-would condition, or a future-less vivid condition. Now, Collins, in the sentence previous, has a mixed condition there. He sets up the future uh, less vivid in the protesis, but then he follows it up with an indicative verb. I don't exactly understand when he's teaching future less vivid conditions why he decides to do that. Um, but he says, you know, the verb in the apotesis is ordinarily a present indicative. Well, that's not exactly right. It's future less vivid is normally two subjunctives. Sometimes you will see a, a present indicative. Here we have it. See, agnus unus amitator. If one lamb should be lost, there's your C clause. If Unus agnus, one lamb, amitator. Notice that is the um, uh, passive of the third conjugation verb, amito. That's why a signifies the subjunctive. If one lamb should be lost, pastor bonus est maestus. The good shepherd, now we come into indicative, is sad. If we had uh, the subjunctive in that, uh, clause, it would say the past, the good pastor or the good shepherd would be sad. It's a should-would condition. In the box, he says, look, the use of the subjunctive in the apotesis constitutes what is termed as the potential subjunctive. This use is rare by itself, but common enough in a conditional sense. Indeed, it's very common 
in a future less vivid condition. So we've got uh, in, in, uh, in review here, our lesson has introduced to you uh, all the conjugations of the present subjunctive, but we already knew that because we knew the little mnemonic device, we hear a liar friar, which gives us the verbs that characterize the present subjunctive in each of the four conjugations, as well as the third I-O, right? So we hear a liar friar. And just plug those verbs in before the ending and ascertain your ending being active or passive. And there you have your present subjunctive for all conjugations. Then we learned uh, a couple more independent uses of the subjunctive, an, an expansion of the justice subjunctive, where we see that the third person singular and also the third person plural can be used in a hortatory fashion. Uh, let the people rejoice, let him be crucified, let the word go forth, all of those kinds of um, urging and polite commands or requests are called justice subjunctives and it's an independent use of the subjunctive. The verb goes in the present subjunctive. We also learned about the deliberative subjunctive. When we're deliberating, we say, what in the world should I do? What gift should I give to the Lord? Should I, shall I not uh, send the deacon to Rome? Blah, blah, blah. What in the world should I do? That's a, we're deliberating. And when you deliberate in a question like that, it goes in the subjunctive. Again, it's a mood of doubt or uncertainty. And then we covered two classifications of conditions in Latin. The simple condition, which has both a present and a past condition. We've been doing those all along. And then the second category of conditions, future conditions. And there we have the future more vivid, where we use the uh, indicative in both clauses, either uh, in the protasis, a future or a future perfect, in the apodosis, a future. And the should, would, or future less vivid condition, where we use two subjunctives, one in each clause. That one can have an indicative in the conclusion, uh, but the pure, uh, the pure future less vivid condition is a should would condition with two uh, subjunctives, one in each clause. So uh, these are our first. Actually, our con this condition is our first uh, use of the subjunctive in a subordinate clause, but we will be getting many, many more. So I think that uh, this chapter is fairly straightforward. You already knew the formation of the subjunctive. This is a good review for you. You can go back and I remind you, don't forget about your morphology section, your appendix way in the back of the book, which shows you the complete conjugation of verbs in all of the conjugations and irregular verbs. You can go there, you can find model verbs and you can see it all written out there for you. So I, I urge you to check that out when you want to review. Um, and then following that, a couple more additions to our independent uses of the subjunctive, which are pretty much complete now. And then an introduction to a few, uh, two of the conditional classes in Latin. You've been doing conditions, simple conditions all along. Uh, now we're going to add a little more uh, complicated one with the future conditions, but those should not present a problem for you. 
So, uh, if you take a look on your, uh, on your vocabulary on page 176, 177, uh, take a close look at that um, and study uh, those words as well as your vocabulary notes. It's a, this a one, uh, I think, is a nice um, feature of the Collins book are the vocabulary notes. I hope you read through those because... They often tell you where the verb comes from or some uh, interesting tidbit about a word. Um, and uh, it will help you remember and uh, deepen your meaning of your vocabulary. One of, the, uh, one of the few things I wanted to point out just to uh, draw your attention to it is on page 177, the verb fungor, fung, fungi functusum. Notice, it's a deponent verb. And it means to act, to perform. We get the word uh, function from it, right? Perform. Notice, it takes the ablative. There are several verbs in Latin, deponent verbs, that take the ablative case instead of an accusative. Um, these are generally utor, fruor, fungor, podior, and westgor. Those five, utors, the really the most important one, which means to use, utor, uti, usasum, and that is followed by the ablative. This one, fungor, fungi, functusum, followed by the ablative instead of the accusative. So I wanted to point that one out to you. Look at nosco, noshere, which means to know, to get to know. Um, and then we have compounds ad nosco and cognosco, prenosco. Uh, to know beforehand, and so on. Um, so I think that uh, the rest of those words in your vocabulary are pretty self-explanatory. Please study them. I know that um, the grammar uh, in each of our units is not that overwhelming, but the piling up of vocabulary becomes troublesome and difficult, uh, and it's hard to keep up with it all. Uh, but as I've said before, it's, very, it's impossible to read or speak or write a language unless you know words. So it's extremely important that you heed your vocabulary and try to learn as much of it by heart as possible. And this will aid in your uh, goal of being able to read uh, ecclesiastical Latin scriptures or lit liturgical texts or what have you. So... I think that, uh, I hope that that's uh, clear to you, uh, the, the grammar that's contained here in Unit 21. And for our homework, let's turn to page 180 and uh, uh, 181 and 182. Um, for your homework this week, I'd like you to concentrate first on uh, Roman numeral number two on page 180, conditional clauses. These are, again, six short sentences using different conditions. This is uh, just a little bit of drill uh, before we get right into the exercises. And uh, this week, I would like you uh, to do the odd numbered exercises again on the sentences here, one, three, five, seven, nine, and so on. Do the odd numbered exercises. And notice that in this chapter, Collins introduces the notion of readings on page 181 and 182. Now, um, uh, the first reading is the Gloria. Uh, and, of course, we want to work on our readings because that's the whole 
goal of learning Latin here is to do readings. Um, you're not going to encounter in your work with Latin isolated sentences, and it's difficult to translate isolated sentences because they're out of context. These are the exercises that Collins gives and any other book gives are for practice, but it's good to get used to, to reading connected sentences and thoughts and paragraphs. So this readings uh, section is a good idea. Now, for your work this week, I don't think it's, uh, we won't go over the Gloria. We won't require that. I think that most of you probably know that by heart, if not in Latin, at least in English. But let's do number two on page 182, which is a reading from the Gospel of Mark. So, um, one more time, uh, what I want you to do is uh, those six short sentences, conditions, uh, under Roman numeral two, under your exercises, the odd-numbered sentences, and then readings number two on page 182. So that's your work for this week. Uh, we'll be following up, of course, as always, with a midweek um, summary and uh, uh, coverage of those sentences, going over them uh, to make sure you got them right. Um, as always, you have more sentences there to practice. And don't forget to uh, write me if you have a question, if there's something unclear. Uh, don't hesitate. I'm always here to help you out. Have a great week, and we'll be back in touch soon. Take care. Bye-bye.